I used to have all these questions for him, like, your God, why some people can make it? Why other people can't? Why so unfair? That kind of stuff. Lah. And he would just say to me, look, God is God. Lah. You can argue what you want. Just because you don't believe doesn't mean it's not true. And of course, he had always been there. More importantly, he always showed himself to be such a good big brother, such a good son. So then I look and see him. Something to it now because the God that he's honoring and following must be getting him to do some of the things that he does, act the way he does. So this can't be bad, right? I mean, he was the start of a good ambassador as far as I could see. He didn't judge me, tried to tell me right from wrong, prayed for me, ministered to me, bothered to keep in touch. He had been in America for quite some time because he was posted there. So, okay, when my daughter felt sick, he spoke to his church. And this is the first time I started to see the love of God. When he got his friends, when he was in New York, he was at an church there, made friends there. He got his friends in New York to pray for me and my family. He got his church in Singapore to pray for me and my family. And I started to realise, what's this about the Christians that they bothered to even pray for you, have thoughts about you, they don't even know you? This is the most amazing thing about our God, right? He gets and he inspires people to love others in ways which cannot be normally explained by worldly secular terms. It's just not possible. Because I know I was never like that. I would never bother. Why would I bother? Nothing to do with me. That's the first glimpse of the love of God. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 59 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Ui Bunho. Bunho is the CEO and director at Drumport Private Limited which is one of Singapore's two main commercial terminal operators. Bunho's story is very much a faith story. As we explore what it was like having a military career with the Republic of Singapore Navy and the Ministry of Defence in Singapore, Paris and Dartmouth, how he transitioned into the banking world before eventually entering the port and shipping industry first as the executive director and CEO of Porta International, which became the first Singaporean company to invest in Nigeria. And now the CEO of Jerome Port. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. My maternal and paternal grandparents were born and, and lived in Penang. I think they could trace back to my great-great-grandfather who emigrated from China. And that's how the family came to be established in, in Penang. And it was my mom and my dad, both of whom were teachers, that found their way to Singapore. And that's where I was born. But a lot of connection with Malaysia. For me, growing up was uh, a lot of school holidays. Back then, there was no North-South Highway. So there was my dad driving Beetle. My mom, my brother, four of us, and we would just go for road trips ah, because the road trips were first to Malacca, stop over at relatives' place, then to KL, relatives' place, then to Taiping, relatives' place, then to Penang, and then the way back again. It was so much fun. Ah. It was the beach and lots of food, a huge extended family. Those were the times back then. And what was it like growing up in Singapore back in, in the 1960s, 70s? What were you like as a child? Do you have a vision of what you were going to do with your life then? No, I, I, I got to say that now I know now that God has a way of getting you to notice him if he wants you to be one of those who will notice him. So I'm grateful for that. It was a very impressionable time for all of us. My parents were teachers, so academics, very, very clearly important, placed at the highest of priorities. 
I picked a path, which was actually something my brother kind of guided me to. My brother was a bit older than I, but joining the Navy, the Singapore Navy, helped me many ways to just, I guess, stabilize myself, my thinking. Things were decided now. So that was also the opportunity for me to go overseas and get exposure in England. And all these memories are still very vivid and very fond to, to today. And then, of course, the Navy continued with another experience uh, overseas in Paris. So all those uh, very formative times. So you were in Paris. You were also at Dartmouth and you got a first-class pass. So it sounds like you flourished. And I'm oh, no. Okay. I, I, again, God blesses us with what we have. And, and if we are about using some of the blessings, then it it's of like, of course, I didn't know it then, right? But all of this just meant that I did well in training and what they wanted to see very quickly, I kind of figured out, you got to assert yourself like, as the leader, organizing things, take initiative, be heard, be heard, but be heard meaningfully, which I guess is the same in every other part of life, especially as a Christian too, because the one thing you don't want to be is be heard in an unmeaningful way, whether you're talking or acting. This whole idea of being an ambassador is, is, is really important. Back then, Dartmouth is a college for naval officer training, basically a university in the United States. But I, I'm sure the name came obviously from Dartmouth Britannia Royal Naval College because it is at the mouth of the River Dart. That's why they call it Dartmouth. So that was one year of training and it was a military public school. And, and then you get me all sorts of people and very interesting time. You have all sorts of other countries were sending their officers. The Saudis were there. The Kuwaitis were there. Then you get all the officers that came for training from the former British colonies in the West Indies, you know, the Bahamians, the Jamaicans. Then you had the Bruneians, you have Malaysians, you have ourselves. Although Singapore had its own training academy already, every year they would pick a couple, two or three or even four and go like, and have your one year there. So that was what that was. And that was followed by three years at university. In which case, it was four years in England and then came back to work. Nah. So come back. The idea about the Navy was that there was a set plan ready. Nah, just fulfill that. Nah. And then there was that time in Paris as well, nah, which was, if you like, a military MBA. Nah, loosely, that's what it means. Nah. Mid-career officers get sent to upgrading. Nah, and also this course helps you with strategic planning, budgeting. And this was a year and a half, six months. First six months was to learn to speak French, to understand. So that you can follow the course, which is a year long. And that again was so interesting because you have not just the French officers, but you have the officers hailing from many, many Francophone countries of ex-French colonies, even non-Francophone countries, Asia, Chinese, all sorts, right? Pakistanis. So you had a very good mix of people and all of us try to understand and get along with each other by speaking French. So it was 1996, 97. That's right. And all those times, I wasn't yet a believer, pretty much leading my life the way I thought would please me. But now I look back and fully appreciate the time that the Lord has granted me. Learning, being exposed, wouldn't otherwise have been. And then developing, I guess, some talent, some understanding, exposure enough for me to better appreciate where I am now, who I am now, and how it is that I can try to serve God were you clear at the no. time that you wanted to have a full-time naval career? Or were you thinking, I know I'm going to be there for a couple of years and I'm going to transition out into working at a bank? Actually, what happened was the job immediately after the Navy actually wasn't a bank. It was at Keppel for three months. But I left after that to go to a bank. So first real job, Navy was the bank effectively. But yeah, I was quite clear, funnily enough, maybe too much time drinking coffee at the cafes in Paris. 
it was kind of soul searching, but I, I just realized that I didn't want to continue with the Navy. But one thing I felt that made me kind of, you know, decide, okay, after I finished my legal obligations to the Navy, or having sent me and exposed me, I, I want to try something else. It's because then uh, the consideration was that I only have so many years left to work. And the one thing, no matter how much money, and by the way, the armed forces in Singapore, they're, they're very forward-looking in the way they want to retain their people, understanding fully that the private sector in Singapore, which has to flourish for the Singapore economy to flourish, is also going to be competing for talent. So they need to be competitive. They were competitive. They are competitive. I'm sure I haven't given you that on the latest that we are using by way of retention. But to attract and retain, they must obviously be competitive. So I realized that no matter how competitive one employer is, you only have one chance. La. You, you either choose to continue or don't. And if you don't, or if you do, then the number of years is there. And that's it. You can't, whatever else, no matter how much else anybody pays you, you can't reverse one second of time. And so that was the guiding principle la, that I don't have all the time. You can only choose one path and that time cannot be purchased. So I left. So how did you go from working at DBS Bank to then being operations director, then CEO of Portet? What was that whole thought process? Oh, 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 that was also a worldly decision to some degree. But I look back now, I realized that it's all part of his plan. DBS Bank was a great place to learn, truly. I worked really hard. <laughs> but you guys would know this. I was doing corporate finance. So it's all this. No limit on hours. And it's quite crazy. But anyway, it was good. I learned tremendously useful information and uh, bits of understanding of how obviously financials apply to companies and such like fundraising. But I had just become a father, right? At the time, while DBS was very kind to me, I thought these hours are just going to be a little bit too fierce. Lah. So the last company that I helped to take public, Protect, the company that I eventually joined. Now, the boss of the company, who later became a friend and became my godson too. It's a very smart man, but very entrepreneurial. And he said, join. And I was in this no day, no night job. Just became a father. So I said, ah, okay, okay. So I, I left. I don't know. I, I think about it now. I'm glad I did. But some of my friends I talked to said, don't lie. You got a good thing going here. But I think about it now. I, I'm glad I did because I wouldn't have this opportunity at June Port if not for that. Of course, there could have been other opportunities that could have presented themselves if I'd stayed at DBS. But I'm glad for the choice that I made. And so that began the time at Portech and took about 12 years. I joined in 02 and I left in 14. Was it and difficult to enter into this port industry? I mean, it's such a very niche industry. Not many people are in it. Okay, this is where I'm also quite blessed. I've always had a job one way or the other, except maybe the bank, to do with water and, <laughs> I don't know, ports, ships. Right. I mean, so it was quite intuitive for me. In fact, I will tell you that one of the IPOs that I had managed at DBS was to do with a shipping company, right? Understanding ports and ships and all the rest of it helped tremendously in working on the IPO as well. So I guess my point is that while you say it's niche, it's actually quite second nature. So again, come back, how God finds a way to shape you and shape your career is truly amazing. Like sit back, think about how some of the choices that were made, even though you didn't know, has led to abilities and opportunities now that can really, I guess, without sounding too lofty about it, can lead to your work being a living sacrifice, like an act of worship. I've come to realize that as much as 
I believe I've made a positive impact. I'm sure I've made many, many mistakes. The position that one is in, the friends, the associates, God gives you unique opportunity to make that difference. So I'm grateful all around because the perfectness of his plan, right? And looking back, I suppose one of the perfect plans that God had for you was through one of the difficult periods when your daughter fell ill. And I wonder if you could Mm. share that pivotal moment in your life. How do you end up reading the Bible, discovering God during that time? Actually, I got to tell you that, you see, again, part of my belief, part of his perfect plan is my brother, you know, he's a church elder. He came to the faith on his own. He didn't have a big epiphanous, violent, <laughs> you know what I mean, a dramatic type of thing. And I oftentimes ask if maybe it would have been better if I was wiser like him. So anyway, he was the one that's always been saying to me, hey, I pray for you. And I used to have all these questions for him, like, your God, why some people can make it, why other people can't, why so unfair, that kind of stuff. Lah. And he would just say to me, look, God is God. Lah. You can argue what you want. Just because you don't believe doesn't mean it's not true. And of course, he had always been there. More importantly, he always shown himself to be such a good big brother, such a good son. So then I look and see hey, something to it lah, because the God that he's honoring and following must be getting him to do some of the things that he does, act the way he does. So this can't be bad, right? I mean, he was the start of a good ambassador as far as I could see. He didn't judge me, he tried to tell me right from wrong, he prayed for me, ministered to me, bothered to keep in touch. He had been in America for quite some time because he was posted there. So, okay, when my daughter felt sick, he spoke to his church. And this is the first time I started to feel the love of God. When he got his friends, when he was in New York, he was at an in church there, made friends there. He got his friends in New York to pray for me and my family. He got his church in Singapore to pray for me and my family. And I started to realize, what's this about the Christians that they bothered to even pray for you, have thoughts about you, and they don't even know you? This is the most amazing thing about our God, right? He gets and he inspires people to love others in ways which cannot be normally explained by worldly secular terms. It's just not possible. Because I know I was never like that. I would never bother. Why would I bother? Nothing to do with me. That's the first glimpse of the love of God. And then when you asked me the question about how I started reading the Bible, well, I wanted to believe. So my brother, I think he bought me my first. And then I started to read it. And then his pastor came to see me. <laughs> I saw the pastor after many years and my niece's wedding just a few weekends ago and I went up to him and I thanked him and he said he had read the Salt and Light article. <laughs> it's quite fun. Everybody is so, you know, so strengthened by that experience. See, I came the profession of God's plan. And that pastor was quite significant, right? Because at the time you were reading from Genesis and going slowly yes. to the beginning. Yes. And he said, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. This part about pastor coming, seeing me and then talking and saying that start reading the Bible from the Gospels and I will come back, she said, this time next week and God would have spoken to you. <laughs> and then I went and looked at it and went, yeah, right, okay. Actually, he said two things to me. He says, Bruno, I, I sense God very near you now and I was going, right. And then he told me about this thing about God speaking to me. So anyway, he, that's me reading the Bible and then I got to John and of course, throughout the entire time, there was a lot of shaking and he comforted me tremendously. But John 9 was the one that really spoke to me. Basically, John 9 is about a man who was born blind and Jesus said his disciples were there and the disciples asked Jesus, said, Rabbi, why is this man born blind? Is it because of his sins or his parents' sins? You know this? And Jesus said, no, he's not born blind. 
for anybody's sins. It's born blind. So she kept cheer our King him and God will be glorified and make a believer out of, well, the born man who was born blind for sure. And of me too. And then it, it struck me, it struck me. God was telling me, I am God. And if it is my pleasure for someone to be born blind, live his life blind all the way until one moment in time that he can heal so that you guys can all talk about it, then it is my pleasure. Which then told me, wow, God, you are awesome for sure. While your ways are infinite and our ways are so finite and you not fully understand this, people will go on and complain about how it's unfair for this man to be born blind to his parents. But that's God's purpose. Fair or unfair in human rights, right? Therefore, we all have one. Fair or unfair in human rights. But he will restore justice, I believe, to the righteous. Not because we are deserving, but because he loves us. He's our God. I don't think there's any other way around it except to say that through John 9, I truly learned something quite profound, at least for me. Because until then, I had no real purpose. It was self-gratification. It was pride. It was all of those things that, you, that a lot of people and I still do succumb to. So that big revelation then led me to think about what is it I'm trying to do in my life and how is it I can honor him. That was the start of my faith journey. Lah. Do you feel like it, there was this burning desire to talk about your new faith and was it hard to do so in the workplace? Well, well no, actually it was not. Sometimes people hear other people talk about Christ and his love for us and their faith journey, etc., etc. And then you know, the people on the receiving end, I, I used to be a bit like this, was, hey, stop trying to hard sell. Do you know what I mean? And so I often tell some of these people who are a little bit more mature maybe and understanding that really, you know, it's all about me being a friend of yours. And if I go to a good restaurant and I want to tell you, hey, go and eat there. It's good price. It's great value. It's the same thing. It's no different. We're wishing the best for our friends and telling them about Christ is no different. So, from that perspective, it was done. But fully understanding also and appreciating that before when I was a recipient of such things and I was close to these ideas, I tended to find the hard selling difficult lah, uh, to accept. So I was also very cautious about this, right? That I couldn't expect anybody to be converted just because I said so. But it didn't stop me from wanting to tell them the good news. I didn't want them to stop telling them that this is the best deal to tell them. Come on, you know, that kind of thing. So there was a change, of course, it's a fundamental shift, right? Start like this new creation. But then it's been 19 years and I, I'm still on the journey. I'm still learning each day, or maybe not each day, but through periods of experiences and times. And this faith journey is really far from over. So speaking of deals, in 2004, it's made an investment into Algeria. And I wonder what it was like sharing advice with Larry Lam, who was very, very circular. And then you quoted Matthew 18, 18 to him as well. How did it all go? Well, I mean, the company I had worked for was not a big one. And we had to find strategic pivots to the business that enabled us to survive more robustly financially. Because it's basically an engineering-based company and therefore project-based. You go from one project to the next and you can get very tiring because you go through periods of feast and famine, right? So what you want is a more secure services-based business that is contractual in nature over time. So these tend to be infrastructural in nature rather than engineering services per se. So we went from a crane engineering services company to becoming, over time, port operators, right? The port operations meant that you got long-term contracts and uh, depending on the amount of cargo handle, eke out a more stable living, call it that. So one of the big expansions, which was a risky thing at the time, but that's where nobody else knows you are willing to go. We brought a lot of Singapore expertise as a small listed company, you know, standing Singapore Exchange. 
to Algeria. So the Singapore reputation is brought to bear in a positive way. So we were the first Singapore company to invest in Algeria. Well, Algeria is a country that's monoland, and that's the main revenue source. And at that time, oil was shooting up, going towards $100 per barrel, etc., etc. So we were doing okay. Economic expansion was powered more oil revenues. So economic expansion meant also consumption went up, which meant imports went up, etc., etc. So getting into a concession of just 20 years long in the city to the east of Algiers was a breakthrough for us. It's a breakthrough for us. It also was a big investment for us, and therefore a big risk. So everything to do with that deal needed a lot of attention, a lot of risk mitigation. So one of the things that was required at one time was the negotiation for the JV agreement and such like that. So that's when I spoke to Larry and I said, don't worry, we will care. I prayed about it. I will it's provided. You bind on earth, it's bound in heaven, you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. So I was trying to give him a confidence that the Lord was looking after us. Or at least he will guide me as I try to help the company through this investment. Because then he would look at me and he wasn't sure what I was talking about. So I felt a bit silly and felt a bit silly. But I didn't matter. I just went on with it, did the work as best as I could. And over time, I guess I must have been guided in ways which he saw were valuable for the business. Because one day he business and the investment did well and other things started to turn around. He looked at me and he said, whatever that you have going on with your God, it seems to be working out. So please continue, right? So that's the first time I realized that she has actually been watching how I behave, why I say what I say. He's observing it and he sees the impact of such things. And he attributes it, borrowed faith, borrowing my faith. And that's when I first realized that he's starting to believe. I mean, he didn't directly for whatever reason, at that time anyway, or wasn't willing to, not, sorry, not daring. To. But that's borrowed faith, right? I mean, that's the first step of faith that you borrow somebody else's. If I look at a Christian and say, I, I believe what you're saying, because you are someone I believe. I may not believe your God, but I believe you. Actually, you're starting to believe in his God because his or her God is what's causing him or her to behave in the way that he or she is. Yeah. And then he did say to me once, he, he said, look, I guess you must be guided because you seem to engender trust. People seem to trust you. I'm not saying that happens all the time. I'm saying that happened then. Okay. So if one is God-led and one fulfills as best as he or she can, his precepts, can't go far wrong. People will see it. Even if they don't really want to believe it yet, and even if they don't at the end of their lives believe it, they will not object to others believing it because it's coming from something good. You just don't know what his impact is. You just got to leave that to him. But we just trust and we obey. So whatever small and big thing we try to the best of our own ability to rely on him and to be led by him and to act in accordance to his precepts, the rest he will work out that's my firm belief. Not always easy, <laughs> but that's what the true journey is about. And then in 2014, eventually replaced Matthew Chan as CEO of Jurong Port, where you are now. I wonder how that transition happened. Oh, wow. Oh, that was also an interesting, it's still, it's still happening now. And yes, there's an amazing amount of purpose I have found in this position because I really believe that Jurong Port has started and is in the process of fulfilling, in my view, a lot of uh, Value creation and what we call resilience enhancement of supply chains, especially in this era of three main things going on, well, climate change, digitalization, and of course the pandemic. So it's a very open economy, simple. Maritime supply chains are key, right? Maritime supply chains are key for every country, even more so for Singapore. But external trade is a few times our GDP. Maybe not maritime trade, but external trade for sure. 
American trade is large part of Western trade. So being a port operator means that you are the nexus of supply chains. Specific commodities flow through the port. And if you have specific commodities that flow through the port, being an operator means that you can influence the way in which these supply chains work or we try to orchestrate these supply chains. We try to make them leaner and greener. We try to make them more resilient. And all of these things can add to the competitiveness of at the resilience of supply chains in, in quite significant ways. As a port operator, the immediate waterfront is key because that's really what you're managing at its very basic, the interface between land and sea. But once you get that sorted, you can start to look at upstream and downstream value creation. So many ways, I can just name you a few. That we all know, for example, that Singapore is one of the largest hubs. It's got an anchorage that's big, anchorage that many vessels come and call and get bunkered, get supplied, come also for the loading and discharge of cargo, etc., etc. So all of these activities go on, but while they go on effectively, can these activities be more efficient? Can they be done with a lower carbon footprint? Can they be done with optimized supply chains, the minimum number of vessels that are needed at any given time, etc., etc.? Like you can imagine the amount of optimization that can go on along these supply chains where port operators such as Zoom Board have the ability to. So you can see how many of these things, if you like, uh, will challenge a lot of status quo. And if you want to challenge the status quo, you're quite deliberate. But inevitably, you will be asking a lot of stakeholders, existing stakeholders, to change the way it go. This is not an easy endeavor. And it requires existing stakeholders, therefore, to trust you, you, any one counterparty, that this change we brought about in a way which enables the existing stakeholders to have a chance to cope with this change in a meaningful manner, enabling them to up their skills, up their value add, up their quality of living. So this is where I believe a lot of how our God has taught us to have regard for others, to do unto others, to be humble. That really, at the end of the day, none of this is your own real ability or effort. Everything comes from him in any way. So honestly think that it is true his teachings through his precepts that one can best glean guidance on how to effect some of these changes in a way which enables this multi-stakeholder environment to move with a change that is good for everybody but may not be so easily welcome at the start if people don't first believe that you are someone that means well that wants to do the best and wants to do unto others you want to love your neighbor as yourself one of the big changes was in 2016, you had this collaboration with Sunseed to create the world's largest port-based solar facility. Was that a big challenge, yeah. like both internally and externally? Not really. Yeah, that one was a lot easier in a sense that from an economic argument point of view, you have roof spaces that are not otherwise utilized. And let's be honest, I mean, this is a little bit before this whole climate change attempt took on such a pace like, that you like. But yes, I mean, if you think about it from a God's precepts point of view, it only makes sense, right? Because it's the right thing to do. There's really no argument about it. But from an organizational point of view, you just want to make sure that whoever it is that you cooperate with is the best party that deserves to be cooperated with. Then our organization can also say that we'll take that box. And in that particular venture, it was quite clear. Like, just use the space, optimize it in a way which makes sense for everybody and we shouldn't create win-wins for everybody. I think that's part of God's kingdom, right? The create win-win so that everybody can have a, a growth mentality. Everybody can have a, can be generous. And another thing I, I noticed is that you've said before you plan to create another ecosystem center around LNG. And I wonder you could share 
how Jerome plans to harness energy for its core energy. How does it all work? Well, the impact of climate change, I am sure you will also know, like it's, it's beyond any one of us, and it's irreversible. And and you really, really need to get our act together. But let's just keep talking, huh? But for us to get our act together, we really need the entire community to work. And you come back down to this idea again, one needs to change the way we operate. And for that to happen, a lot of ducks for the lined up. And for that to happen, what idea about multi-stakeholder engagement in ways in which are guided because our God is a generous God. God is one who with you. Follow his precepts, you will create trust, you will engender trust, you will, you will also extend trust. And that's what we need, this multi-stakeholder because nobody really wants to be on the losing end. A situation where there's a win-win, everybody sees the upside, even if everybody has some pain in time, it will work over time because they trust that correctly motivated people are using this change. Now, NNG, a lot of people say it's a transitional fuel. It's cleaner than other fossil fuels, but it's also more natural gas when liquefied, buys a lot of energy. Now, that same energy is just wasted if you just allow the LNG to go up to ambient temperature and then become natural gas again for the purposes of burning so that we lose energy. So one of our ideas is that natural gas, and this is not a new idea, can be the cold energy when it's brought up from minus 163 degrees Celsius, I believe, back to zero again or back to ambient temperature. This cold energy can be stored and this same kind of cold energy can be used for refrigeration in the cold chains. Even in, for example, minus 80 degrees for, I don't know, vaccines, for example. So it means that you don't have to use additional energy for refrigeration. This energy already exists. We just have to find a way to capture it, store it, and, and apply it. Because this is free. It's already been spent. So that's part of the optimization. Now that's one of the ideas. So the, the idea over time is that, you see, some of the births at Port can be optimized for other things. We are a multi-purpose port operator. One of the means by which natural gas or LNG can be distributed to various parts of the world, especially in the region, that may not have very large capex-intensive and LNG-receiving terminals is using container terminals to receive natural gas or LNG that comes through isotanks. So if you have LNG stored at JP, this LNG can be transferred to isotanks which is a container. And because we have container cranes that can be put on ships and these ships can go to various places, taking this LNG to places that can run their, their gas turbines on natural gas and as opposed to other fossil fuels which are not clean. Natural gas is the cleanest of the fossil fuels, but they can't receive LNG unless they have a big receiving terminal or they have a container terminal that can take the boxes that means LNG in the tanks, which we can distribute because we need the facilities like that. So, in that way, not only has business around LNG, that has got to do with helping neighboring countries receive LNG without having huge capex expenditure on LNG receiving terminals. Then you can also use the coal energy, like I explained to you earlier, and other possible uses of the LNG, for example, for concrete, because one of the fuels that, apart from fuel oil, which is another one of the liquid fuels, LNG is cleaner. So you can help it being used on chips. You can distribute it to the region so that smaller populations can have access to LNG. You can use it for coal energy. So this is an ecosystem now, effectively. The same thing, several economic pillars to support business and all to help the environment anyway. I heard in an interview you did with Money FM 89.3 that the thing that keeps you up at night is safety. 
the port of Singapore has remained open during the entire COVID pandemic where safety is a main concern. I wonder how your operations, the way you run the company has been impacted given this pandemic. Well, yeah, I mean, I think everyone has been impacted one way or the other, but definitely the operations. We have a lot more segregation now. So the ability to optimize across teams and everything else is limited or constrained by the fact that you've got to keep teams separate and as much as possible, even individuals separate. So separate, you have to, you know, there's a lot of considerable amount of expense going into these segregation measures. Then there's all the testing and everything. So but we are grateful like, as a whole. I think our government has taken a strong lead in ensuring that the nation follows in being as safe as possible. Very deliberate, very calibrated, taking full consideration of all the Environments from our economic impact, impact on our healthcare system, logistics chains, and all for delivery of vaccines and everything from prioritizing who should get what. So, as I talked about, having to wait five hours, but I didn't really wait. Okay, like, I had to wait half an hour, but that's okay. Like, you know, having achieved that, one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. So, all these things are done well so that we take the lead. A lot of us will just take the lead. And of course, on our own, given our own specific conditions, we also maybe go one or two steps beyond to make sure that our conditions are just as protected as anybody else's for that. Or even more so because our conditions are not going to are unique to us. So yes, I have got a good team as well. So as a whole, I will say that our entire system is pretty well done. Nothing to be complacent about. There's always going to be a chance something else can go. We've always driven for said to ourselves, we have to be ahead of the curve, ahead of the curve. So many things since the beginning of this pandemic, we try to see what's next, what's next, and then try to get it before that event actually turns out and then causes damage because we would have been there with the precautions and things already to prevent any fallout, even though that event was high probability of evangelizing actually took place. Do you feel like you have found your why? I, I believe I, I, do, I do have my purpose and I'm grateful to the Lord for having given me this truly, I, mean, I, I cannot imagine my life without it. Put it that way. What kind of a legacy would you like to leave behind? What legacy? Actually, I I, I, I will share this with you as much as I often tell myself, I pray about it. Say, look, no pride, all glory and honor belongs to him. You have what you have, don't have what you have for his purpose, his pleasure. So you just do your bit, rest, leave it to him. So legacy is really in my mind. Sorry, it's also a bit of a pride thingy. But I'm also only human, which is the next one I'm going to make. And therefore, there is a little bit of me, human, says that, wow, I want to remember as the guy who did this or did that. And then I stopped myself and I sort of said, yeah, the only legacy that I would want is for people I've interacted with to know that it is our God that is the one true God. Or at least that belief was made possible through some of the actions that I had undertaken as his disciple. The only legacy I would want, frankly. Yeah, somebody says Unho has been able to be successful because he has got his God behind him. That's it. Not because he knows of any real significance. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? They will believe in Christ. <laughs> That's right. That's what I think. I believe so. Believe in Christ, trust and win. They are obedient. They are trusting. He will take care of things and you will be successful. No? And that was the end of episode 59. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismywide.com forward slash 59. And also a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of the most highly regarded and successful commercial barrister Clark on what it's like working in the less known world of barristers, clerking for some of the world's best legal minds, including a former Chief Justice of England and Wales, his love of flying and owning airplanes, the realities of managing the finances and relationships of a chamber.
why he moved to Singapore and what he intends to do moving forward. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.